Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for an opportunity to open it together, to hear it read, to spend time soaking in it. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, who inspired the word, to illuminate it to our understanding, apply it to our lives in a transformative way for your glory and our joy in you. Amen. 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 Yeah, good morning. Nice to see you. I'm Chris, one of the pastors at the church. And as Alita said, we are concluding our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And it is a a little bittersweet. I think it's been seven months we've been going through this portion of Jesus' teachings. And throughout this entire series... We've been working from the premise that Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. We don't think about that often. We think a lot of things about Jesus, but rarely do we think, yeah, Jesus obviously the smartest person who ever lived. Jesus wasn't a scientist or an innovator in the tech industry. But understanding quantum mechanics does not equal a good and virtuous life. Right? Building a rocket ship does not make you a person worthy of imitation in other areas of life. A comfortable life might be a gift of technology, but a virtuous life is not. And yet hundreds of millions of people, different time periods, different places around the world for the last 2,000 years, have found Jesus to be an expert on the full life, the abundant life, life that is truly life. I remember years ago, there was an author, Paul Johnson, who wrote a book called The The Intellectuals, it was called. And the book was about some of the brightest minds who built our secular age in the West. People like Rousseau and Marx and Nietzsche and Freud. He then goes on to show how their lives were utter train wrecks. In many cases, they were terrible guys, womanizers, abandoned children, that kind of stuff. Their writings have shaped the secular West, but they lacked virtue, proving what we already know. You can have a brilliant mind and a broken life, religious or not. Jesus, on the other hand, was a brilliant mind who lived a beautiful life. Jesus understood and understands the meaning of life and how to live it fully. As one of the early church fathers said, the glory of God is a person fully alive. And Jesus' teaching holds the key to a life that is fully alive. We believe that. That's why we've been spending so much time on his words. And so today, we're looking at the ending of the greatest sermon ever preached by the smartest man who ever lived who in the course of his ministry makes it clear that he's more than a man. He is God with us, the source, the author of life. So it makes sense that he knows how it works best. And so I know Alita read the text, but I just want to read it one more time. This is how Jesus concludes the sermon. He says these words, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. There are two threads that run throughout the whole sermon that are clearly seen in Jesus' closing illustration. And it's going to help us recap some of what we've learned. Here's the first one. To follow Jesus is to embrace a sharp either or. What I mean is Jesus consistently offers a choice between two alternatives. He says either this or that, right? You can't worship God or money. So in that sense, it's either God or money. Either treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. Either the narrow road that leads to life or the broad road that leads to destruction. We see the same thing in this passage. You will either build your life on the sand or on the rock. Pick one. Choose today whom you will serve. That many things in life are nuanced, right? Some things are both and. To explain the complexity of human behavior, it's not either nature or nurture. It's nature and nurture. It's both nature and nurture. But according to Jesus, in many matters, there is only an either or, either darkness or life, either death or life, either truth or lies, either or. In fact, in matters of truth, the either or always emerges. Either Jesus is the Son of God or he is not. Either Jesus forgives our sins or he does not. Either Jesus rose bodily from the dead or he did not. Either Jesus is Lord of our lives or he is not. Either we build our lives on his words or we do not. Either or. Why so clear and stark? Well, I think it's meant to force us into a free decision. It's meant to help us choose who we want to serve, ourselves or the living God. There is nothing worse than sitting on the fence between those two options. Will I serve myself or the living God? It's a miserable place to be. We're either too religious to fully enjoy sin or too compromised to fully enjoy Jesus. And when Jesus says pick, it's a kindness. He's fighting for our ultimate good. Halfway in might actually be all the way out. So he invites us to go all the way in. Choose today whom you will serve. Sitting on the fence is miserable. And as we've gone through Jesus' teachings over the last three weeks, it's almost like Jesus has tried to push us off the fence to go all in. And here he says it's either going to be on the rock or on the sand. We'll build our lives on the rock or on the sand. Either or. Second, another motif that runs throughout this sermon is the difference between external and internal righteousness. Righteousness meaning right relatedness to God, to others, to our own selves. So for example, Jesus says in chapter 5, you know, you've, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry at a brother or sister will be guilty before the law. And so throughout this sermon, Jesus is going 
underneath the surface of our actions. We tend to focus on symptoms. Jesus addresses root causes. There's been a lot of focus on unjust systems over the last years, which is very, very important. But sin lives in sinners who create systems that oppress people. The unjust systems are a symptom of sin. In here, sin that lives in the heart of human beings. We can't change the world unless we change the human heart because the brokenness in the world is a reflection of the brokenness in my own heart. Right? You can change the means of production in an attempt to reduce economic disparity, but you can't change the human heart that is greedy or trapped in a scarcity mindset or always afraid of not having enough, the human heart that wants to impose its vision through violence. Or think about the environment. Years ago, I read a quote from a, a scientist, a climatologist, Gus Speth, which is a lovely name, actually. I like it a lot, Gus Speth. And he wrote these words. I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address those problems. But I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. What he's saying is these things are problems and they are real, but the problem's not just out there, the problem's in here. As a church, we support an organization called Ally Global that, that works with girls who've been rescued out of trafficking. It provides like preventative but also restorative care. And we're going to keep doing that. But that horrible practice exists because of greed and lust in the human heart. And so we go, hey, let's get rid of murder. And Jesus says, yes. Let's also talk about the contempt in our hearts that makes something like murder a possibility. We say, let's get rid of sex trafficking and sexual violence. Jesus says, yes, but let's also talk about the greed and lust in our hearts that makes something like trafficking and the porn industry a possibility. In one sense, we'd rather focus on externals, things that are out there, those bad things out there, and fight against that, which is good. And yet Jesus forces us all throughout the Sermon on the Mount to consider contempt, and lust, which lives here. Because human behavior is always downstream of our desires. And cleaning up a river downstream doesn't ultimately help if the source is polluted, if our desires are disordered. And so Jesus goes after the source of our lives, our hearts, right? The seed of our affections, our will, our desires. Out of our hearts flow our lives. And the Sermon on the Mount actually describes for us what a heart under new management begins to look like. What a life under new management begins to look like. And so throughout this sermon, Jesus says external righteousness is not enough. And we see the same thing in the illustration that Jesus used of these two houses, both look similar outwardly. Even the storms described by Jesus sound the same. But under the surface, the foundation is what really mattered. And all throughout this sermon, 
Jesus is going after the heart, the deep foundation of our lives. And the storms show us why. So those were these two threads that ran throughout the entire sermon, and we see them in today's text as well. But we're going to go more into detail on it. As we heard it read, you hear Jesus describe this severe weather. He talks about rain falling and wind blowing and, and streams rising. It's a storm. And it's a storm beating against two different houses built on two different foundations. And we'll talk about the difference between the houses in a moment. But first I want to think about the storms because throughout Scripture, this imagery or symbolism of storms is used to refer to trials, like in Psalm 69, and also God's judgment. Storms refer to trials at times, and at other places in Scripture, God's judgment. So I want to look at both. First, the trials in life. In this parable, you notice there's no promise that storms won't come. Like, there's no promise of sunny skies all the days of our lives. And storms are many and numerous. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the author of Narnia, once did a Q&A while, you know, speaking to servicemen in the Second World War. He traveled around to different military bases, he gave talks, and then he did Q&A. And I have the transcript of one of them. And he was asked this question. Is it true that Christians must be prepared to live a life of personal discomfort and self-sacrifice in order to qualify for pie in the sky? And the ultimate answer to that question is no, nothing we do qualifies us for heaven or life in the kingdom of God. But the first words out of Lewis's mouth were this. All people, whether Christian or not, must be prepared to live a life of discomfort. In other words, Lewis points out that regardless of one's faith or lack thereof, storms will come. Right? Health challenges, death of dreams, loss of relationships, jobs, critics, opposition, a legion of naysayers, or whatever. There's no way around the storms of life but through them. And people cope with storms in different ways, right? Self-medicating through substances, uh, escapism, distraction, uh, burying oneself in work or achievement, schooling, leaning on family and friends, or spirituality. Many people turn to spirituality in a storm. In fact, spirituality is increasingly popular religion as well. And because we live in the secular West, we're tempted to think that religion is a thing of the past. All we ever hear about is a growing number of nuns and duns, people who have no religious affiliation or who have left the faith. But worldwide, globally, only one in six people claim to have no official religion. And in the next decades, that number is projected to decrease to only one out of eight people who have no official religion, partly because religious people have more children. And so France, for example, will be predominantly Muslim in the next 50 years or so if immigration and birth rates continue as they are in their current trend. In 2015, sociologist Rodney Stark reported that, quote, of the world population, 81% claim to belong to an organized religious faith. 74% say religion is an important part of their daily lives, 
and 50% have attended a place of worship in the past seven days. Russia has more occult healers than medical doctors. 38% of the French believe in astrology. Go figure. And 35% of the Swiss agree some fortune tellers can foresee the future. Nearly everyone in Japan has their new car blessed by a Shinto priest. Point being, religion is not going away. Spirituality is as popular as ever. Like how many of us found faith or started to think about spirituality when things got hard? Like when storms came our way. That's why some people call faith a crutch. The proper response is, yeah, what's yours? Like we all have one. And if your leg is broken, a crutch is a helpful thing. There's no point being ashamed of a crutch when you need it to walk. Like how many of us started exploring faith because of a storm? I heard a story of a young woman this past week and uh, she left her childhood faith behind, not practicing her faith or anything. But her dad was really sick for five years and doctors couldn't help, they couldn't figure it out. Five years of persistent illness. And she was in Europe recently, and her religious friend invited her to Mass and told her to light a candle and say a prayer for her dad. She did, and that very week, her dad had a medical breakthrough and is better after five years. And she doesn't have a committed faith, but she doesn't know what to do with that spiritual experience. It's like, does prayer work or not? Is that a coincidence? I don't know. And now she's wrestling. And when storms come, when, when people are in need, when things are hard, there is this propensity to get spiritual. And it can be a beautiful thing. God can use it. But Jesus says, when it comes to spirituality or religion, there is a foolish way to deal with storms. And it's offensive. And we can't avoid what Jesus says. He says the foolish way when the storms come, the foolish way is to hear his words and not obey. That is the foundation of sand. To hear the words of Jesus and not obey them is to build our lives on sand that won't withstand the storm. Imagine spending seven months studying the Sermon on the Mount and then not changing our lives as a result. According to Jesus, that would be foolish. Imagine calling Jesus Lord and God and not taking his words seriously. According to Jesus in this passage, that would be foolish, especially when the storms come. Now more positively, if you look back at the text, Jesus starts with the promise that in the storms we won't sink if we both hear and do what he says. Both groups hear the difference is obedience. That's building our lives on the rock. And I've seen this play out again and again. I'll tell you one story. Years ago, I was at a conference outside of Edmonton, and on the Friday night, we were presenting a man named Ernie with like an honorary doctorate. And Ernie was in his mid-80s. And uh, he was sitting up in a room filled with people honoring him. Like, he was the main event of that night. And his family was there, you know, friends that were still living, children. Everyone had flown in. They were there. And a friend of mine named Cal was kind of, you know, doing a speech honoring Ernie and his life, right? He was talking about Ernie's love and, and like, his life of love and service 
you know, how he planted churches. Uh, he was a missionary in India. And how he just fought the good fight of faith. And midway through the speech, while it was going on, Ernie had a heart attack. And they started chest compressions and they cleared the room. And the entire night was canceled and we all went next door into the cafeteria to pray. And then his family came into the cafeteria and told us that their husband, father, and friend had gone to be with Jesus. So they talk about a storm out of nowhere. It was a traumatic situation. But we started singing songs. And I remember his daughter saying, you know, through tears, God is so good. God is so good. Just testify. The next day, his wife got up in front of everyone and said, all morning, there's a song that's just been going through my head on repeat. She didn't remember the name of it, but she said, the chorus is something like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O my soul. I'll worship your holy name. And in that moment, we all felt it, like the weightiness of that testimony. That the storm out of nowhere revealed clearly to us the foundation of their lives. Their lives were built on the rock, a life of obedience to Jesus, a life of taking seriously the words and the teachings and the call of Jesus and reorganizing their priorities and their family life around it. And I was thinking about it, and the reality is I've been in more hospital rooms and at more funerals than the average person. Like in the last 19 years, I've seen enough real life and hard stuff to last me a lifetime. And it has built my faith like nothing else. Because again and again, I've seen people who've built their lives on Jesus' word, who've committed their lives to obeying him, withstand the storm and testify to his goodness through tears and pain. That the wind blew and the rain fell, but their house didn't fall. And that's what I want for all of us. A spiritual backbone fortified with steel that can stand up under the storms of life. A spiritual backbone that comes from deep intimacy with Jesus and a commitment to obey his word. A life built on the rock of obedience to his word. It's either the sand or the rock. It's either obedience or not. The choice is ours. Now, storms in Scripture can also refer to God's future judgment or wrath. And many scholars think that this is the primary meaning of Jesus' imagery, that he's talking about what scholars would call like an eschatological judgment that reveals the quality of our faith and our work at the end of time. We die, we stand before Jesus, that idea. And inside and outside of the church, we tend to view the concept of final judgment, heaven and hell, like we view it pretty negatively. And I would love you to consider this. If there is no judge of the earth, what hope is there for the world? Like what hope is there that unaddressed wrongs will be righted and dealt with in an ultimate, perfect, impartial sense. And I would suggest there's really no hope for that longing to be satisfied 
apart from the existence of God. Martin Luther King Jr. said the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. If God doesn't exist, that's just nonsense. The only thing the universe bends towards is oblivion. And in that sense, I've come to appreciate and even long for the justice and judgment of God. When I hear about the wrath of God in scripture, I used to cringe. I don't anymore. Because I think it testifies to his fundamental goodness. A mad God is not a bad God. A bad God is a never mad God who yawns in the face of injustice and evil. Christian or not, every time we cry out, like the world should not be this way, we're longing for things to be made right. It's because we're made in the image of God. But here's the other question. The first question is, if there's no judge of the earth, what hope is there for the world? The second question is, if there is a judge of the world, a judge of perfect goodness, what hope is there for us? I mean, my heart's been filled with contempt and lust. I haven't always been a peacemaker. I've been a peace disturber. My parents would probably use another word to describe the type of disturber I was. <laughs> I haven't always been a peacemaker. I haven't always hungered and thirsted for righteousness. I've done the opposite. And that's true for all of us in different ways. Uh, Francis Schaeffer once gave this illustration that I've kind of tweaked. Um, he's dead, he won't mind. Um, but imagine if every person had a recording device with them wherever they went. And this recording device only recorded, it only switched on, it only recorded the moral judgments that we made about other people. That's when it switches on. And eventually each person stands before God as judge. And at that moment, God simply plays the recording device. And each person hears in their own words all the moral judgments they made against other people. The standards of morality they imposed on other people, right? This, you know, this person gossips, that person's a liar, this person is inconsiderate, never helpful, always late. Like years and years, thousands and thousands of moral judgments that we make. Then God simply says, you know, regardless of whether we've read the Bible or not, where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? The standards you've imposed on others. And if we were honest, painfully honest, in the end, every person would be silenced. We would stand condemned, not by an alien code of ethics, but by our own. And we would have to acknowledge that we've done things that we knew was wrong. 
That we've had these moments where we've said something or done something or thought something where, you know, if there is a God of holy, like, like holy goodness and, and, and perfection, that God must despise the thing we've thought, said, or done. The point is we long for perfect justice, but what hope do we have of surviving it as imperfect people? Like, how will we stand up under the storm of God's judgment? And the rest of the New Testament presents Jesus as the only satisfying resolution to that dilemma. That Jesus endured the storm of God's judgment in our place on the cross, and he did so willingly out of love. He drank the cup of God's just wrath. He endured the hurricane of God's holy reaction against sin and evil. Jesus is the one who bears our judgment to offer salvation. Let me quote Timothy Keller. He writes this, Jesus Christ is the judge of all the earth, who came the first time, not with the sword in his hands, but with nails through his hands, not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment for us. Jesus Christ is the judge who was judged, so that all who believe in him can face the future day of judgment with confidence. On that day, because we are pardoned, he will be able to end all evil without ending us. Jesus Christ is our great hope for ultimate justice and our only hope for surviving it. Jesus is the perfect judge that our hearts long for, who is also judged in our place. Without judgment, there's no hope for the world. Without Jesus, there's no hope for us. So this is not a salvation we should ignore. And Jesus goes further. He says, yes, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But the faith that saves us is never alone. It always produces obedience. Faith without works is a dead faith. And in this concluding illustration, both groups hear the word of Jesus. Both groups, you know, they read the teachings of Jesus. Both groups may even memorize the words of Jesus. The difference isn't between those who hear and those who don't hear. The difference is between those who hear and obey and those that don't. That Jesus' words aren't just for hearing. They're not just for memorizing. They're not just for admiring. These words are for obedience. These words must be put into action. Only then do they provide a secure foundation that can survive the storm. That's how Jesus ends maybe his most influential portion of teaching. And his teaching in this sermon, it really is breathtaking. It's done deep things in my soul. And so let me close this series with the words I started it with. What if we took Jesus seriously? What if we got in a room alone with the Sermon on the Mount together? Like, what if we took the words of Jesus seriously as a foundation for our lives? It would only ruin our lives on the way to restoring our lives. And more than that, we would know our need for grace. We would know we don't measure up. 
And we would know that Jesus throws out a lifeline for all of us who have built our lives on sand. That he won't let us go under the water if we cry out to him for help. I mean, that's the good news of Christianity. Jesus saves us and gives us power to live a new life, to grow into people who reflect his character in the way described by this sermon. And here's the thing I really love. Jesus doesn't just tell us these words. Jesus perfectly lived this teaching. Like he had a brilliant mind and a beautiful life that was consistent and pure. People are so tired of hypocrisy and corruption. Yet Jesus lived in purity. He fulfilled the law. He loved his neighbors and loved his enemies until the end. He trusted himself fully to the good care of his father and never judged hypocritically. Like he, he was a true prophet who showed us the narrow way that leads to life. A way that leads us to his cross and through his cross into new life. And he invites us to follow him. So what if we tried together by God's grace? It would be a beautiful thing. We would be like the wise person who builds their life on a rock so that when the wind blows and the rain falls and the water rises as it will, we will not fall. And that was my prayer for us as we started this sermon series. And that's my prayer for us as we end this sermon series.